And so one of our most basic callings as Christians is let your light shine. I mean, I can think of some songs. Let your light shine. Whoa. <laughs> you know, there's, this, there's a powerful truth. Let your light shine before, before men and before others to stand for truth, to contend for the faith. We cannot stand by while evil prevails. God promises to uphold for those who stand for him and his truth. And friend, God's favor, to rather be right with God, the favor of God is worth more than the approval of men. Rather be right in God, with God and wrong with the world. I don't know about you, but as our culture becomes increasingly tolerant of sin and intolerant of truth, I want to be on the right side of Scripture, even if it means being on the wrong side of history. Because the history books of this world keep a very different set of, of history according to the, the history books of heaven. The history books of heaven keep a very different record of, of the world than, than what's written by men. Edmund Burke said, all that is necessary for evil to succeed is that good men do nothing. He said, friends, there's no neutrality in the ultimate battle between good and evil. We have to resolve now that we will not be silent and that we will do something. And uh, this scripture, Matthew 5, I heard shared this week, and I just thought, man, this is from the Beatitudes. It's part of my daily reading plan at the moment. And, and uh, you're a light. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. almost want to stop right there. Can you say, I'm the light of the world? It feels quite awkward to say, I'm the light of the world. That's what Jesus is saying. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, how many of you have got smartphones? Probably a lot of you. And should, does it have a light on it? If I um, switch on my torch, my light? You know, a torch in some parts of the world is this flaming thing. <laughs> But in England, it's a torch, a flashlight. A little. So you can see, let my light shine. But friends, it's, it's small, but it's visible. Would you agree? Yep. But friends, if I do one step further, if I go to the place, it's still on, but if I turn on my camera and I turn my camera towards myself, which you can do, you can do selfies. Did you know that? So if you see now, my face is here and I can examine did I brush my hair this morning? Probably not very well. <laughs> Did I trim my beard well? Did I, on my nose hairs? You know what I'm saying? But the light's gone off. The moment you're looking at yourself, friends, the light is not going out. The moment you're fixated or focusing on self, something happens. Your light's not shining before others. And it's just an illustration. You see, we are transformed by what we focus on. Focus, focus, focus. That seems to be a word that uh, Pat shared and that we're coming back to again and again. You see, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount isn't saying make your light shine. He's saying let your light shine. Let your light shine. What is this light? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And also in this Bible reading plan that I've started, Bible in a Year, 
Right in the beginning of Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And what Paul's saying in this 2 Corinthians passage is, firstly, the same God at creation who spoke into the darkness and created light has made His light shine in our hearts so that we can know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus. In other words, that light that came in the beginning then came in the person of Jesus. Jesus, the light of the world. It was in him was life, and that light, or that life, was the light of all mankind. And it goes on in verse 5 the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And in, in, if you look at the footnote, it says, The darkness has not understood it. How many times do people not get you? They don't get you because you've got a light in you that's beginning to shine into darkness. And they just say, I just don't get you. And you Christians and this, whatever. They don't, it's, you, they don't understand it. The, the, the darkness has not understood it. Can't fathom it. Can't comprehend it. I just don't know this Jesus stuff. I just don't know it. I can't understand it. And, and then it goes on also in 1 John 1.5. It's quite interesting. You've got John 1.5 and 1 John 1.5, both very similar scriptures. This is the message we've heard from him and declared to you. God is light in him. There's no darkness at all. And so we see from these verses, light symbolizes both knowledge and purity. This is God in spiritual perfection, moral excellence and utter transcendence into his glorious and wondrous light. Friends, that's transformative. That's transformative. For, for, for it's so attractive. It's life-changing for others. Because, friends, for some it's life-changing. I can remember seeing somebody shining with Jesus. Just, just, he sang Amazing Grace with no music, and he just shone. And I, and I was drawn to that, and I went to speak to him after the meeting. Because here I took great courage in front of all of us uh, um, military types who were sitting there, forced to be in the chaplain's period, and Harry stood up as one of us, and he sang Amazing Grace and shone like, and just, it, was, it was attractive to me, and I spoke to him. But for others, and I've experienced this, when I, my dad almost said, you're coming to church with me, and I was rebellious, and I was arms folded, and not that everyone who's got their arms folded right now is rebellious, <laughs> but I would be in the back, and there was a war going on inside me, and I wanted to just get out of there. Because you see, the summing of the presence and the light and the love of God was affecting me, and it was challenging that rebellion in my heart, and I couldn't wait to get out of that meeting. And you've probably been there. You know others who've been there. You've spoken to them and they've reacted. They haven't responded to you well. They've reacted to the Jesus in you. They've reacted to the light in you because it's been offensive to them because it's exposing something in their hearts and lives. And so, friends, when I think of, of um, some people, they will shy away from it. But no matter what reaction you, you get, it isn't to be contained. Your light isn't to be contained. Let your light shine. Let your light shine. Every act of kindness is letting your light shine. Every act of obedience to the Lord is letting your light shine. Every heartfelt prayer for someone when they're in crisis is letting your light shine. What will that mean for us as a church? If every one of us let our light shine, it will light up our homes. It will light up our neighborhoods. It will light up our workplaces. It will light up our colleges. It will light up our city. It has to. And as I said last week, there's, there's a great revealing, a great unveiling of the glory of the Lord, such that all people shall see it. This is an end time thing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
from Habakkuk. In fact, I think there's four references to a similar thing in Scripture. In Exodus is another one. Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And Jesus' prayer in the high priestly prayer in John 17, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. I've brought glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. That's in uh, verse 4. And as we continue to do the work given for us to do, we glorify him. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. The beautiful bride of the church is emerging, not with makeup. This isn't a a bride that's that's plastered with makeup. Excuse those who do plaster with makeup, but it's not a bride that's made up, you know, it's it's all with makeup. It's it's a bride that comes forth with battle scars through the smoke of battle, a warrior bride as soldiers before the cross of Christ. And I asked Sam, this isn't in my PowerPoint, but just a couple of pictures, um, and some of you have seen them before, but it's of this warrior bride. And uh, friends, a bride in army boots, a bride with a sword. That's you and I. It's actually Bibi's sister, but it's, it's you and I. You know what I'm saying? It's God, captivate my heart with that picture. Where do you need to arise? Where do you need to take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God? Where do you need to take a stand and say, thus far, no further? You see, you can't go back and change your past, but you can make a new start and change your future. That's, talk, that's taking ground. And William Booth, probably more than 100 years ago or close to it, he uh, was the pioneer of the uh, Salvation Army. He mobilized an army. Onward Christian soldiers, that kind of uh, going on to, with the cross of Jesus. Going on before. A rallying cry. And he said things like this, and it's radical. While women weep as they do now, I'll fight. While little children go hungry as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison, in and out, in and out as they do now, I'll fight. While there's a drunkard left, while there's a poor lost girl upon the streets, while there remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight, I'll fight to the very end. Man, that's a rallying cry. I can, want, I can see them right on the, the depravity, on the poverty of London streets, crying out, come to the Lord, come to Jesus. And so friends, when we approach this consummation of the age, it is a tale of two cities. Charles Dickens wrote in that opening line of the book, A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Friends, there's a, that, that, that phrase suggests a, an, an age of radical opposites taking place at the same time. We see that in Scripture. There's two spiritual cities being built, two systems coming to maturity. The first is in Revelation 14 and Revelation 17, the mystery Babylon. That name's written on her forehead. Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes the, on, of earth's abominations. She made all nations drink the wine of the wrath of her sexual immorality. And friends, we see that. We see that all around us. We're reaping the so-called free West, the fruit of the 60s sexual revolution. We're seeing it. 
That seed was sown probably even in the 20s. What did they call it? The swinging 20s or the roaring 20s? It was, it was, it's been in there and it's just been maturing. But this, this so-called freedom that we have in this de- democratic West, what have we done with this freedom? The, the way of, of the media, the morals, the ideology that's been exported to the world. What cultural and moral madness is being promoted? Uh, worth remembering these quotes. Leo uh, Tolstoy, I, I haven't, did he write War, War and Peace? I think he wrote War and Peace. Anyway, I haven't read it, very thick book. <laughs> but he said, wrong does not cease to be wrong because the majority share in it. And St. Augustine also said a similar thing. Right is right, even if no one is doing it. Wrong is wrong, even if everyone is doing it. So friends, what's been accepted as the new normal? The sexualized nature of today's teaching in schools so that children are unsafe and sex-posed. In school. Do you know what I mean by sex posed? They're exposed to stuff beyond their maturity, beyond their years, that brings confusion, that brings unsettledness, that brings a whole lot of question marks. The Archbishop of Canterbury is rejecting calls to scrap the Church of England's transgender affirming guidance that suggest Church of England schools should allow even very young children to transition. Friends, that's on the table. There's a family in this church. They took their four-year-old son to a school and the table that they saw laid out there was a full gambit of you can transition, you can accept this, you can accept that, you can identify as this or identify as that. And it was at a four-year-old age in this area. I'm not talking about somewhere else. It's, It's right here. And so friends, what else is madness? I mean, incoming college students, and I'm not just talking about the UK, this is wider than that, probably the States too, starting their classes by reciting their preferred gender pronouns. A man identifying as a woman and exposing himself to women and children in a woman's locker room. This is happening under our watch. Girls on puberty blockers and being given as a 13-year-old full mastectomies because they're confused about their gender identity. Friends, that's grievous. That's abuse. That's child abuse. It has to be seen as that. It cannot be seen as anything else. Ten-year-old boys are sterilizing themselves for life as they take hormone supplements to stop the onset of puberty while they figure out whether they're male or female. Female athletes being crushed or humiliated by boys who identify as girls and who are demolishing hard-earned records of their female peers. Friends, as believers, we need to care deeply for those who struggle with gender identity issues, especially young people. There's a vast amount of confusion we're witnessing today, but it's because of a viral sociological contagion. Let's call it out for what it is. Let's not speak, stop speaking up and speaking out until the tide turns and the sanity prevails. Do we really have a choice? The enemy is so wanting to, let's see beyond this, friends. The enemy is so wanting to defile humanity that we lose hope of ever being a habitation of the Lord again. That's the enemy's purpose. That's Babylon. He wants to divide us. He wants to intimidate us. He wants to silence us. He wants to get rich doing it. That's mystery Babylon in a nutshell. That's the one city. And we can see that city. I don't need to describe any more about that city. The Bible says in Genesis that we are made in the image of God, in the likeness of God. And Satan wants to destroy the image of God in creation. In all of creation, only human beings are made in God's image. Only human beings. This is a great privilege. It gives us beautiful dignity. 
And I, I, we don't know all that, what that phrase covers. And I, uh, Rick Warren describes it. He says, some of the aspects include, we are spiritual beings. Our spirits are immortal and we'll outlast our earthly bodies. And then secondly, we are intellectual. We can think and reason and solve problems. And then thirdly, we're relational. We can give and receive real love and have a moral consciousness. We can discern right from wrong. And that makes us accountable to God. But the image is incomplete and it's been damaged and distorted by sin. So God sent his son, Jesus, on a mission to restore the full image that we've lost. Wonderful news. God news. That's the gospel. And what does that full image and likeness of God look like? It looks like Jesus Christ. The Bible says Jesus is the exact representation or the exact likeness of God, the visible image of the invisible God, the exact representation of his being. And so ultimately, the enemy wants to mutilate that image of God in mankind, to bring it to a place where it's stripped and confused and distorted and even destroyed. So puberty blockers, hormone treatments, genetic modification to the physical body, mastectomies, Friends, the list goes on. Chemical and physical castration. Those are all the enemy's design to destroy the image of God. All these things. But he made us male and female. He defines our identity and he defines our worth. And he wants to take us, uh, wants to take man from being an, a bearer of the image of, of God. And that's what the enemy's trying to do is distort it and, and bring it into the image of the beast, the image of the enemy. And that's a mutilation of sin from the fall of man originally bearing the image of God in the creation and t- until in the book of Revelation where there's the worshiping of the image of the beast. That's the progression. But, but, but God, but God, and God's spoken of this. It's in the book of Revelation, this mystery Babylon. But we're encouraged in this last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, right at the very first verses of this book, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's all about him. It's all about Jesus. Blessed is the one who reads about the the words or reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. It's not just hearing it, friends. It's taking to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Greater things are yet to come. Greater things are yet to be done in this city and in this nation. The harvest, it says in Matthew 13, verse 39, is the end of the age. And so, friends, when you think of the church, what picture comes to mind? You may think of a family and with sons and daughters of God, and it is a household or habitation of the Lord made up of living stones knitted together, and it is a body with each part needed and significant, and it is an army, as we saw earlier, of soldiers before the cross, and it is. Why is it an army? Because it must be trained, equipped, and disciplined. The church is like an army because it's got to follow direction from leadership, respecting the chain of command, progressing in an orderly fashion. Church is like an army in the sense we've got to look out for our fellow soldier. That soldiers fight in in, in unity, in team. That we're not a one-man army. We're a church is like an army because we understand the nature of our warfare that we're engaging in our battles, not with flesh or blood, but with powers and principalities behind the throne. 
the spirits that are at work behind the faces of people that you think are your enemy, whether they're in the public figures or public domain or whether they're personal acquaintances. We fight together, not alone. And then the church is like a royal priesthood. And it is. We have a great high priest and we, are, and we priests under his priesthood. We offer sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving to God. We pray and intercede and stand in the gap. And then the church is a bride and it is. My beloved is mine and I'm his and his banner over us is love. It speaks of an intimacy with our bridegroom, cleaving unto him, forsaking all others, maintaining a life of passion with the bridegroom. And then the church as a city, and it is. The opposite of Babylon that's thrust upon us is the holy city. And I love these pictures, friends. These are glorious. Revelation 21.2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So even in that previous picture, are you able to go back to it? You can see there's a darkness, and there's a, but there's a light that's breaking forth. Beyond the clouds, beyond the, there's a silver, I want to say silver lining, but there's a beauty that's coming forth. And then if we go to the next picture, thanks Sam. Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to the mountain, great and high. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a, a jasper, clear as crystal. So if we look at that picture, um, friends, we call to be an outpost of the new Jerusalem, to be counterculture, to be a heavenly kingdom culture. We have a different set of laws whose builder and maker is God. Abraham says it in, in Hebrews, it says of him in Hebrews 11.10, for he is looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Let's hear what the Spirit is saying to his church. And I believe in this next season, we call to focus on building a city that will shine with the glory of God, an outpost of the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the holy city of God, not the Babylon. We're not of the Babylonian system. We are of a different system. We are of a heavenly one with a heavenly culture, a beautiful culture that's redemptive and wants to see the brokenness of people healed and the confusion brought to, to, to a place of, of acceptance and knowledge and understanding of who I've created to be, who he's made me to be, fearfully and wonderfully made. Know, know that all together, right from the mother's womb. And then let's seek the welfare of the city as that scripture's up on the wall there um, that he's placed us in. Friends, that's going to require you and I standing in the gap, interceding, letting our light shine, recognizing where are the walls broken down in our lives and in the city and in our neighborhoods. Where do they need to be rebuilt? Just like Nehemiah did with the walls of Jerusalem. And that's the reason our next series is, is starting next week is through the book of Nehemiah. And I'm looking forward to it because I believe there's some keys there even that picture God gave me of this, this bastion, this rampart of this heavenly Jerusalem that, that he's building. And I just feel God saying that there's living stones and there's stones that are burnt and there's things that are needing to change and be transformed. And, and, uh, and it's going to require work of the Spirit. And I just want to say, come Holy Spirit, work among us, work in our hearts. 
Speak to our hearts. Change us. Lord, we don't want to go out the same way we came in. We want to be transformed. Whatever we focus on, we'll be transformed by God. We want to focus on you. We want to fix our eyes on you, Jesus, author, perfecter of our faith. Help us to look to you this year. Help us not to look to our own health or our own wealth or our own situation or our own woes or whatever our anxieties and problems and fears are. God, we want to look to you. We don't want to look to anything else, Lord. And clothe us with power and boldness from on high. God, we're going to need, we're going to need that. We're going to need forbearance, a resilience in the face of hardship and even opposition. And then, Lord, won't you help us serve the least? that we may discern what you would have us do, even in the face of difficult decisions. And God, we're going to need a divine enablement to do that, a grace that you would move upon our community, that you would move upon our nation and even the nations, Lord. Stir the fires of another great awakening of your spirit. And Lord, let it start with me. Let it start in me. Summon your power, O God, as you've done before. Show us your strength, O God, as you've done before. Let your fire fall, let your wind blow, let your glory come down. God, there's so much more. We don't want to limit you, Lord. We want to say, come, Lord Jesus. Even so, come. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Come in your glory. Come in your power. Come in, in your conviction. Come in your whatever way you want to come to us, Lord. In your precious name. Amen.